0: The Optometry Talks podcast series is brought to you by Optometry New South Wales ACT, your peak professional body.
1: Welcome to Series Two, Episode One of Optometry Talks. Today we're talking about supporting mental health in me and my patients. I'm Andrew McKinnon, CEO at Optometry New South Wales ACT, and today I'm joined by psychologist and keynote speaker Dr. Rachel Clements. Rachel, good morning.
0: Good
1: morning. Um, let me just give you a little background on Rachel first. Um, Rachel is a psychologist with a bachelor's degree from ANU and a master's from the University of Western Australia. She's the co-founder of the Centre for Corporate Health, where she's the Director of Psychological Services. Rachel is a key presenter at national and international conferences in the areas of occupational stress, intervention, treatment and prevention. She's frequently asked for comment by media organisations on areas such as workplace stress, resilience building mental health and organisational function, and was a panellist on the Are You OK? Day conversation think tank. Rachel, many of you might remember too, uh, was a presenter at Super Sunday back in 2016, which seems a lifetime ago. Um, Rachel, awareness about mental health has come a long way over the last decade, um, but we seem to still have a way to go to get rid of the stigma that's attached to it. How common is it to be affected by poor mental health?
0: That's a great question because we are seeing the prevalence rates actually increasing for mental health within our general population. We're looking now at about 45% of the general population will experience a form of mental health issue at some point within their lifetime. And when we're looking particularly at our workplace population, the actual prevalence rates are even higher, particularly within our high-functioning, high-performing, and high-achieving professions such as law and banking and finance and accounting and optometry. Uh, we're looking at prevalence rates of around one in three people who will be impacted by a mental health issue in any given year. So even if you're just doing the numbers on that, mental health issues have the potential to impact a lot of your profession and we're knowing now in recent data that was analysed just last year from the Productivity Commission it's showing that it's costing now untreated mental health issues is treating is costing the Australian economy about 180 billion dollars each year so because of the prevalence rates and also the impact of mental health issues across a whole variety of professions, it is really important that we now put mental health on the corporate radar.
1: Um, You've just said about 45% of of the general population will experience a mental health issue, but um, the normal reaction would be, okay, on that basis, there's one in two, and I'm okay, so you must have a problem. How, How does that... Rationalise. Is it is mental health defined as I'm having a bad day, or, or is it a complete breakdown? How do you mm. how do you rationalise the numbers?
0: Yes, I think. Well, when we talk about the definition of mental health, it is very different to experiencing a normal emotional reaction. Like, for example, we all go through times where we're feeling a bit down and a bit flat and a bit low from time to time. We all go through times where we're feeling a bit anxious a bit panicky, a bit worried. We all go through times where we feel a bit stressed and under the pump and under a bit of pressure. Usually those reactions, they're not terribly impactful to us. We can normally still get up in the morning, travel into work, do a full day's work. We're not terribly impaired by those normal kind of mood changes that we would experience. And very often we can label those mood changes as, I'm feeling like this because this has happened, or I've got some pressures, or I've got some personal issues. And often it's quite short-lived, so we can bounce back and we can recover, often within a quite short period. Where stress, or having a bad day, or having an anxious time transitions into more of a mental health issue is where it becomes a lot more permanent. So pretty much the cutoff is feeling uh, not great for a period of two or more weeks, pretty much all day, every day for two or more weeks it is characterized by now i'm really not tracking so well i'm not performing so well i'm not communicating so well i'm not so great at home so my whole life is now impacted and impaired so, so it's not just work it's my whole life um and really anything that has any perhaps uh excessive reactions to it that we might not normally expect in ourselves or our colleagues around us think, well normally I don't react like that and now I'm continuing to have these pretty excessive reactions to things that normally wouldn't bother me. They're all indications that maybe stress has crossed over into more of a mental health issue, particularly when we start to notice I'm now very different to how I normally am and it's going on for a little bit of time.
1: Okay. Um. You mentioned the high performing professions and optometry, I think, is is one of those. Um, does that make us significantly more prone to anxiety and depression compared to the, the general population? Um, and if it does, what are the characteristics that sort of make those high performing professions more prone?
0: Well, there's, there's a couple of things that I would say yes optometry is probably more at risk of experiencing mental health issues than other professions there's inherent work demands obviously that are part of that picture but also to do a lot with the interaction of the work demands and the personality styles of who might enter into the profession in the first place. And that's certainly what the research tells us in a lot of professions, particularly optometry, you are wanting people who are quite perfectionistic to be able to do a very good job and undertake their work with minimal error. You are wanting people to be pretty high achievers, to be able to be successful and run their own practice and their own business and be quite successful in how they might do that. You do want people to be a little pessimistic, looking for flaws or looking for problems or looking for when when things are not going so, so great and maybe spotting those early and building contingency plans for, for people. Uh, you do want people to be highly intelligent to process and quite a lot of very complex information very quickly. You do want people to have a high need for control, to be super planned and organised and not drop the ball in the middle of important, important work. So these are some of the characteristics of people that would enter into the profession. And what we tend to find is that with professions where people have a lot of those personality styles, we do see high prevalence rates because it is interesting to note that when somebody is on the well side of a lot of those personality styles, it does give us a very high functioning, high performing, high achieving individual. So that's fantastic. However, when something happens in one's personal life or even one's work life, Someone with those personality characteristics can travel very quickly from the well side of those characteristics down to the unwell side. So it is a bit of a double-edged sword that the characteristics that do make somebody so high-functioning, high-performing, high-achieving, so great at their job and their profession, in the same way actually can make someone more vulnerable to the experience of a mental health issue, should in particular challenging situation come my way. And where we see the impact of those personality styles is also then on how people with those personality styles may cope when they realise for the first time perhaps in their life that they're not tracking so well. So we often do see quite high functioning, high performing, high achieving individuals. will use three coping strategies to get through that time. First is I'll throw myself into work. I'll be more conscientious. I'll be more persevering. I will work harder and faster and longer. And that's going to get me through this time. The second thing that we often see is a lot of denying and avoiding. I might block it out. I might pretend this is not happening to me. I might engage in some unhelpful coping strategies in the background that kind of keep it at bay, keep it in the background. And in fact, I might get so good at denying and avoiding that this is happening to me that I don't even know. I'm actually not travelling so well because I've got so good at blocking it out. And then the third coping strategy that we see often in in, in you know, professional occupations is masking and hiding it. I'm actually going to go to great lengths to cover this up. I know I'm not performing at my best. I know I'm not my best self, but I'm going to cover it up so no one else can see.
1: What about cocaine? Yeah, because well, cocaine is the drug of choice for a lot of very high-performing individuals.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and that comes into the denying and avoiding strategies. So we do see one of the primary coping strategies of a lot of uh, professional occupations is alcohol misuse, recreational drug use, or pharmaceutical drug use Mm -hmm. now as well. Mm -hmm. So they're some of the strategies people would use just to block it out, keep it at bay. So with those personality styles, it's almost like every day I go to cope with my wellbeing and actually make it worse. So that's why within your profession, it is about getting onto these things very early because people can travel very quickly. A high-functioning, high-performing group travels very quickly from the, well stage, from the early warning stages and not tracking so well into actually becoming quite unwell quite quickly.
1: So on that, um, if you start to feel like you're on the slope, what can you do to prevent yourself falling onto the spiral?
0: I think one of the best things is the self-awareness piece. And a lot of people uh, in optometry would be very similar. You're very other focused. You're constantly focused on others. You're focused on your patients and your customers and serving others. And then you're probably focused on your friends and your family. So actually self-awareness in a lot of those professions is actually quite low for oneself. So I would say the first thing is actually being able to have that time just to kind of notice in yourself and have that self-awareness that I'm actually not tracking so well. And then when you have that self-awareness, just, I think, just regarding well-being as like a competency that we need to invest in, just like a technical competency that optometrists would actually invest in in their professional development every single year, well-being should be viewed in our high-functioning, high-performing occupations as exactly the same. It's It's competency to actually get really good at And there's a few things that you can actually do to to kind of get good at that, Um, but it does need to be effortful, intentional, and actually conscious. So whatever strategies people use, it will be different for for different people. Um, Obviously, exercise has been found to be very effective for the prevention, even a study that came out last year showed that exercise three times a week for 15 minutes reduced somebody's rate, reduced people's rate of mental health issue back to 30%. So if you're in a high stress role, exercise should be part of your your lifestyle or even just getting more movement out of your day, just being aware to kind of move around. Our sedentary lifestyles now are now the equivalent to to smoking 10 to 15 cigarettes a day. So our sedentary lifestyles are very bad for our health. Um, There's the impact of connectedness, connecting with friends, family, colleagues, you know, making time outside of work for those sorts of connections. Because I know when you're a sole practitioner often, it can be quite lonely at times. So making those connections and and forging those because we actually do release oxytocin when we're not tracking so well through connection. But actually what we see in high functioning, high performing individuals is that we kind of persevere through things. So that means we're self-reliant. I'll just do my own thing. I actually become disconnected. One of the worst things that we can do when we're not traveling so well so the connection actually helps us to release oxytocin it might be mindfulness really having some time to actually be mindful and present to kind of bring your reactions down um, it might be opportunities for getting hits of positive emotion uh, so that our levels of dopamine in our brain can remain really high so finding out a couple of things and it only needs to be for a couple of minutes a day that you actually are conscious of keep connecting with positive emotion and inducing it. Like it could be through listening to music. It could be looking at a photo on your phone. It could be um, talking to somebody. It could be um, getting out in nature. It could be just getting out in the sunshine. Whatever it might be, it's about being conscious about doing something to invest in your wellbeing. Because if we're not doing that in high performing professions, if are not investing
1: in our wellbeing, we're very much at risk for experiencing mental health issues these days. So I'm sitting here as a 62-year-old male listening to this and, and I completely understand that young men might be different, but I'm thinking, I'm all right, I'm 62, I'm fine. Are men worse at this than, than women? And, and is there a different mechanism that they go through, particularly around getting help?
0: Yeah. That's a, that's a good question because males and females are quite different. So the statistics on males with depression, we know that men will experience much more severe depression than women. Their depression tends to go unrecognised, unsupported and untreated. So males are much more self-reliant. I'll just get through this myself. Or much more likely to avoid and deny and engage in helpful coping strategies to block it out. Whereas, whereas women will actually be more likely to talk to people. And actually, there's been some research on this to show that, you know, when when men come together, if there's been a challenging time, even if they're connecting with their friends, they often don't talk about the challenging time. Mm. They'll talk about sport, they'll talk about work, they might talk about something else. They talk about the challenging time maybe 12 months after. They've been through that period. Whereas women, if they're coming together and they're going through a challenging time, they'll talk about it. So men will seek assistance, but the trend seems to be when it's kind of at the pointy end, it's Mm. not too late, but they tend not to seek assistance early. They'll try to be self-reliant, block it out, disconnect, pull away. And is is that
1: important across men's age groups?
0: I do think the younger generation of males coming through are much more educated in this space. Mm. They are much more open, they're much more willing to talk about things, so the younger men are different and they certainly have well-being as a very important need for them Uh, the younger generation is very educated about their well-being the millennial generation has been studied extensively and they absolutely are looking for professions and workplaces where their well-being will be taken into account rather than compromised so well-being is high on the agenda for them and they're very educated around it. Whereas more that uh, Gen X generation or baby boomer generation are less inclined to actually seek that assistance okay. early on. That's why all the educational programs... I do think that there's a shift, though. I think men are getting better at it, even in those generations. But still, men are much more at risk of experiencing severe depression for those reasons.
1: So if you've got... Um male or female who's who's starting to think yeah i'm, I'm really struggling um what do they do how, how do they start to get themselves back out of that mire
0: i think first thing is realizing that life throws challenges to us all the time and it's okay to go through times where we're feeling as if we're struggling with life um and i view well-being on a continuum, there's going to be times in your life when you're feeling on the well side of that continuum, you're feeling great, everything's going along and everything seems to be our work life, our professional life, our social life, everything's okay. But then you go through times it's unrealistic to think we're always all going to be psychologically well for the duration of our career, which is, that's not realistic. Challenges happen to us. Uh, so we'll go through times where we're not feeling so great, where we might be starting to feel, I'm a bit stressed, I'm a bit overwhelmed, I'm not coping so well. And then we might go through times where we're actually feeling quite older. Then we'll go through times where we're actually on that recovery pathway. So I think particularly for men, realising it's okay to not be tracking so well, because we all go through times where we're actually no different to each other. And if people do share their experience, Often what you'll find is there is a whole heap of other people that <laughs> say, I've been through that before. So it's, it's pretty much normal and part of life these days. Uh, I would say overcoming self-stigmatising beliefs about seeking professional assistance early. Mm-hmm. So in with perfectionistic, high-achieving populations, what we see, if I start not to travel so well, I'll, I'll label myself very harshly. I feel guilty. I feel ashamed. I feel embarrassed. I feel like I'm letting my team down. I feel like letting my family down. And those self-stigmatizing beliefs keep people out of linking in with professional support. So if I can overcome my self-stigmatizing beliefs, I can link in with some professional assistance. And most of the time, it's really just assisting and supporting somebody through a challenging time in their life. It's temporary. So it's not a permanent state. Mental health issues are very rarely a permanent state it's usually just about getting assistance and support at that time and talking to someone that maybe you trust that can guide you and help you and opening up to someone that you trust.
1: So if I've, because um, I get calls from time to time, um, if, I'm, if I'm getting a call from a member who I can tell is starting to struggle with various things but they may have, I opened up to me or I may know them and I, I've got some clues. What's the best thing that I can do or, or Audrey can do if she gets a call like that?
0: The best thing I think is firstly to realise if someone's initiating that conversation with you, how much courage and how much confidence that takes, particularly for a perfectionistic conscientious high achiever because even talking about that can be a little bit of vulnerability that they're sharing with you and to a perfectionist that's quite a big thing so i think honoring the moment with that person because quite likely you may be the only person in that person's life that they're actually choosing to open up to and people will choose this conscientious high achieving perfectionist will choose who they who they trust and they'll take time to choose that person so i always think Respect that and honour that moment because you've been chosen for a reason. Someone has seen something in you that resonates with them. Maybe they think you won't judge them. Maybe they think that you will just listen to them. Maybe they think that you will be able to support and assist them. Whatever it might be, it's about honouring the moment. If someone opens up and talks about how they're not travelling so well, all you have to do is listen. That's all you need to know. You don't need to have all the answers. It's about listening without judgement, listening without problem solving, listening without troubleshooting because chances are you're not the the person that can have all the answers Mm -hmm. for this. So it's just about the most effective strategy you can do is allow that person to talk and just to listen with them and then when the time is right in that conversation to gently guide that person to some action. And that's where your language in the conversation can shift and change. So it can be very much around, okay, sounds like there's a few challenges going on. Let's look at what we might be able to do to support and assist you right now. And it's that we language that's extremely powerful when someone is feeling alone and isolated and disconnected to know, right, there's someone that can be on this journey with me for a little bit and walk shoulder to shoulder with me. And that's where you might be looking to link him with other external supports. It could be. There's so many counselling services that are fully available these days, 24-7. You've got Lifeline, you've got Beyond Blue, you've got um, people who can go to their GP and seek assistance through their GP GP and and obtain assistance to see a psychologist for up to 10 sessions within the Medicare scheme. There's the Australian Psychological Society where you can go and choose a psychologist or a counsellor and somebody to talk to as well if someone needs that professional Mm. assistance. Or it could be more more of a simple plan you know what, let's connect again next week. Just check in, see how you're going. So sometimes even listening
1: can just be enough. Let me turn the coin over. Let's say um, I'm talking to somebody, Um, I've got a mate at the moment who's doing this, and it was, how do you initiate the conversation when I'm seeing there's something different about you, but you haven't confided in me? How do you start that?
0: Well, I think that that is a skill and for the majority of high-performing, high-achieving people in the profession, that is almost always the way it goes. So people are actually not necessarily the people doing the, I wanted to have a chat to you about this. Usually we will often find you are in the, need to be on the front foot, need to be initiating those conversations, because if we're always waiting for that person to come to us, One, you're going to be waiting a very, very long time. And two, in that time, somebody can shift from the early stages of becoming a little unwell into becoming quite unwell. So very casually, it's got to be private, confidential, but casual. And it could just be something like, this is the powerful part in the conversation, is something like, I just wanted to check in with you and see how you are. I've noticed that you don't seem quite yourself in the last little while. I'm here to support you. Are you okay? Okay. So you can still ask the question, are you okay? But the really the life-changing part of the conversation for somebody is, I have seen a change in you. You are not quite yourself. Okay. That is the most powerful part in the conversation. I find sometimes when people start an are you okay conversation with, so I just want to check in, are you okay? You're gonna get a master hidden response. Yeah, I'm great, everything's really good. So it's around feeding that back, and it takes courage. It takes courage, and we know from our some research with our U OK Day that we support, one in three Australians are very uncomfortable about initiating those conversations. So if you think about that, probably one in three Australians are not having the conversations, and particularly in, what, in, in occupations where we may have prevalence rates of one in three,
1: people prone to a mental health issue or who will experience a mental health issue, that's not bridging that gap that we often see. Let me take you off on just on a a tangent. Um, I remember when you were talking to us in 2016 about suicide. Mm -hmm. One of the things you said which has stuck with me was that um, people will talk to their optometrist because the question is, why would someone talk to their optometrist about suicide? And uh, you said it's a relationship of trust is not a relationship that's especially close and so you're not embarrassed about talking to somebody. Um, is that the same with general mental health? Um, because we do get, we hear from members that um, they have patients confided them that they're not doing well and they don't understand why they've been picked.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I do think that's a good point. I think sometimes it may come down to the qualities of that optometrist in terms of, again, I'm sensing that they're a person who's open, who would judge me, if I can trust them. Maybe they are a little bit removed from my life because I'm not seeing them every single day, but I'm seeing them, you know, at a, at a regular interval enough to get the trusted relationships and enough emotional deposits in the emotional bank account. Uh, it, could, it could definitely be the qualities of the optometrists themselves. I would say that's probably got a lot to do it, but also it is that you're in the the helping profession as well and I think it's just it's a lot to do with the trust I think in that in that relationship so I always think again it's about honouring that moment if someone trusts in you to confide in you that they are not tracking so well always remember you have been picked for a reason and you are a wonderful connector you don't need to solve the issues that's not your job that's not your responsibility so don't feel burdened by that Your role is to be a wonderful connector for that person. Let's link you in now with someone that can assist and support and perhaps even I would encourage the optometrist to maybe be that person that does that follow-up. I'm going to place a call to you in the next couple of weeks and just check in and see how you're going, see if you made that call. Or maybe we could make that call together right now even Mm -hmm. if, if you really need to. So really being an active connector is important.
1: Okay. Um, If you and I are really good mates um, and you're not traveling so well, I'll probably be able to pick it. But if, if you and I have a professional relationship where I see you as an optometrist every couple of years, we haven't got that bond, are there any particular clues that manifest themselves that might help me to identify that maybe there's something there?
0: Yes, I think being able to have mental health on your corporate radar is important because we know in your profession the prevalence rates will be very high, so it is there, so actually being on the lookout for them. What we often see in high performing professions is that a mental health issue will firstly emerge as a physical health issue. So it's often because it comes down to those coping strategies we spoke about earlier, if I'm hiding and masking, If I'm denying it and avoiding it or working harder, working longer, all of that distress doesn't evaporate. It just gets pushed back inside and it plays out in my body in a somatic form. So that could play out as if I have a mental health issue, chances are I am getting only three or four hours of disturbed sleep a night. People look shattered. And even if you're a female and you're trying to put on a lot of makeup to cover it up, it's a different tiredness to I'm working hard and working long and I've got young kids and I'm traveling a lot. It's a different tiredness and think looking out for the fatigue. Um, people can get uh, physical health issues, colds and flus and just being more constantly run down. A very high correlation with mental health issues and gastrointestinal complaints. People genuinely think that they might have a food, you know, food poisoning or stomach upset when actually it could be very much related to mental health issues. It can be skin issues, adult acne, psoriasis. It can be weight loss or weight gain. I saw a person do some counselling a couple of years ago and he internalised all of his depression and he lost 15 kilos in a two and a half to three week period as a result of all of that distress turned inward, headaches, migraines. So it plays out firstly in the physical well-being department. It can also play out then in the mood department as it moves on. With men, it tends to play out more anger, irritability, short temperedness, more task focused. It could be someone who just seems to be more worrisome, more down, a bit more low. It can play out in the people's thoughts tend to be different. They might catastrophize things, blow things out of proportion. Be very sensitive, take things, personalize things, take things on board much more personally, become more rigid or more black and white uh, or more perfectionistic. Uh, and it can also be obviously changes to how people actually show up at work. Maybe I am le- leaving work a little earlier or maybe I'm coming in a little later Very often in high performing um, occupations we see changes to the prefrontal cortex, I'm making errors, my memory's not so great, normal things I would do, I'm not concentrating, normal things that I would do is now now my prefrontal cortex is impacted. So very often we see changes to the work performance because I can kind of cover up to some degree a lot of other of those wellbeing departments. But the one area I can't compensate for is how well my brain is taking in information, producing an output of high quality, with minimal error. All of those things can be impacted. And and people withdraw socially. That's a very big warning sign. Someone who's normally pretty social starts to keep to themselves, not wanting to interact. Um, People showing up to work, presenteeism, it's called, is costing Australian businesses now four times more than what absenteeism ever did a lot of high functioning professions are showing up to work but i'm actually not psychologically functioning very well at work
1: can i just um think that's that's been really good um can we just finish can we just can i just take you back again you you named a number of organizations that could help. Can we just run through those again? Yeah. Please? So there's
0: a number of you know wonderful organisations set up. There is such a lot of assistance <laughs> out there nowadays. Uh, Beyond Blue have a twenty four seven counselling line that's completely free, completely confidential. As does Lifeline. There's lots of information on the Black Dog Institute website, Day website, Zane website. Uh, there's the opportunity to link into a professional through a GP through a mental health care plan and be able to seek professional assistance and then there's also the Australian Psychological Society that you can ring up and find a psychologist uh, who might specialise in a particular area as well.
1: Rachel thanks that's been really really interesting Um, great discussion on our own mental health as well as patients. Um, We're going to be inviting Rachel back shortly for another podcast on how to balance family and career without losing your mind. Um so stay tuned for series 2 of Optometry Talks. Thanks for listening and please take good care of your mental health.
0: This episode of Optometry Talks was brought to you compliments of Optometry New South Wales ACT.